0: The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, Dwight Eisenhower... Sure, he led the charge to end World War II, but leading the nation from the White House was a whole new test for him. Like any good general, he did it by assessing each situation, coming up with a good plan, enabling qualified people to help him, and then sharing the success with all those involved, something not typically in the D.C. political playbook we're getting to know the cautious, deliberative, patriotic man who managed a growing nation in a progressively explosive world. Why the nation like dyke? That's on this episode of American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. To help us get into our 34th POTUS is author and UCLA professor Jim Newton. For years, he worked for the Los Angeles Times as a reporter, editor, columnist, bureau chief, and editorial page editor. He knows his way around a keyboard. He's put together several critically acclaimed biographies, including the one that really grabbed our interest called Eisenhower, the white house years. A link to this title will be available on AmericanPotus.com If you're interested, Jim, we appreciate you taking the time. Welcome to American POTUS.
1: I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Jim. Thank you so much. You know, over the years I've been able to travel out to Abilene, Kansas, several times and become a great admirer of of Ike for sure. And I've really enjoyed your analysis of him. You you begin your book by telling us about several people who helped shape Ike's character. What were the most important traits you think they helped him develop?
2: Yeah, it's an excellent question and a good place to start. It seems to me that, that maybe the easiest way to answer that is by focusing on two of those characters, Generals MacArthur and Marshall. MacArthur uh, was a supervisor for Ike relatively early in Ike's career, and it did not go well. Ike used to refer to uh, his time uh, working with MacArthur as a study in theatrics, and uh, and MacArthur referred to Ike as the best clerk I ever had. Um Ooh. And, and those two comments, I think, kind of capture the yeah. essence of their relationship, which was tense. Uh, and I guess I would say from MacArthur. Eisenhower learned a number of lessons about what not to be like. Uh, there was a, a grandiosity and a braggadocio about MacArthur, a kind of cockiness, all of which offended uh, Eisenhower and rubbed against that upbringing. He had that modest upbringing. He had an Abilene. He found a mentor much more suitable to him in General Marshall, uh, who he didn't exactly apprentice himself to, but served under uh, later in his career, especially most notably during se- the Second World War. From Marshall, uh, who he greatly admired and, and deservedly, uh, he acquired, I think, or or reinforced the values of patience, dignity, of self-control. Self-control, I guess I would list it maybe as the top of that list, too, because it was not easy for Eisenhower. Eisenhower had a temper, and he worked to contain that temper. And he watched Marshall comport himself with such dignity uh, and such self-control that I think that left a lasting powerful and important impression on eisenhower
1: you know one other person that is raised before we go into the next question is is fox connor i thought that was a really interesting part of the story could you tell us just a bit about about him and his influence on on ike
2: yeah i an interesting influence i think on ike and mamie uh because it was very early in eisenhower's marriage he went to south america or to central america to serve with fox connor um connor is one of many of the uh ranking military people who saw early promise in Eisenhower. And it launched Eisenhower uh, into uh, into adulthood in the military and into a career, a really successful career. So I think he, he very much appreciated Connor's admiration for him and reciprocated it. Um, and because it was a, a real first adventure for Ike and Mamie, also
1: an opportunity for their relationship uh, to take shape. So that's a really important period in Eisenhower's life as well. Yeah, really fascinating to see all those early influences that, that helped make him into the man he was. The next question, when when Ike goes into office, he uh, is able to accomplish a ceasefire in Korea that had eluded President Truman. Why and how was President Eisenhower able to accomplish that? Well, first of all, I guess I should
2: say that I think Eisenhower was elected principally because the American people believed he could bring peace to Korea. He was the general after all who had prevailed over Hitler. And the combination, I think, of his military expertise and the fact that he was a bit of an unknown as a president was useful. Uh, He threatened through back channels to use nuclear weapons uh, to end the Korean War, which was, by the way, we should emphasize, an utterly plausible possibility uh, in that period. The United States solely was in possession of nuclear weapons and they undoubtedly would have brought the war to a swift conclusion in fact none other than general macarthur who we just talked about advocated uh, in a in a memo to eisenhower not only using nuclear weapons end the war but using uh, nuclear weapons to bomb every chinese airfield within flying distance of south korea and to sow nuclear waste along the Yalu River to prevent reinvasion for thousands of years, which is – it's hard to imagine yes, what could have gone wrong there. But, right. but the, the, the significance of that is not so much what was a fairly outlandish idea that I quickly dismissed, but to note that the idea of using nuclear weapons was by no means off the table. Uh, at that period. So Eisenhower's willingness to try new strategies, his reputation as a general, as a successful general, his newness to the office, I think all of those gave him an advantage in negotiating an arm what proved to be an armistice and which he was able to do within six months of becoming president.
1: As he entered office, the nation was dealing with the, the very controversial actions to say least of Senator Joseph McCarthy. How did, how did I deal with McCarthy?
2: Yeah, this is a really interesting vantage point to look at Eisenhower. I think it's very early in his presidency. He was widely criticized at the time for not doing more to check McCarthy. And some of that criticism, I think, is deserved. But the other thing that was going on that we've only come to know in later generations was it's also an early example of what Fred Greenstein referred to as the hidden hand presidency. That at the same time that Eisenhower was publicly refusing to engage with McCarthy, he was privately building opposition to McCarthy with with business leaders, with political figures. Um, It's interesting to note that every time the press criticized Eisenhower for not taking on McCarthy directly, there was the presumption that if he did, he would do so to criticize and curb McCarthy. No one ever had any illusion that Eisenhower sided uh, with McCarthy. And it's it's interesting to read the coverage now because you realize everybody knew that, and yet Eisenhower never said it uh, publicly. So he was much more active and much more um, aggressive about checking McCarthy than the public record of the day Uh, Makes clear. And so I I think, uh, you know, that said, I think it's also fair to wonder had he taken on McCarthy directly, whether McCarthy would have come to a quicker fall. Uh, If so, it may have saved some considerable suffering uh, for the country and certainly for individuals involved. So I, I don't know that Eisenhower's strategy was necessarily the best one, but it was a much more deliberate and painstaking strategy than people thought at the time. Um, The fact is he really, he was appalled by McCarthy and he did what he thought he could while avoiding the risk of elevating McCarthy's standing, which was part of his fear is that he would end up in a kind of toe to toe with McCarthy that would elevate McCarthy's criticisms to the level of the presidency. Um, Now, was that the right way or the wrong way? It's 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 hard to have an objective judgment on that. But I think what we've learned more in the aftermath of the, or in in looking back on that period, is that it was not that Eisenhower was passive. It's just that he was deliberately quiet about the way he approached the problem.
1: Well, another area of Ike's policies that are often debated and and controversial is his approach to civil rights. Why do you believe he deserves the generally negative assessment sometimes given to his actions in that arena?
2: Yeah, here again, the record is mixed. And I think the deeper you look at it, the more complicated it becomes. But I I do share the criticism uh, of Eisenhower on civil rights that was widely uh, ascribed to him at the time. Eisenhower grew up in segregated Kansas, went to school at West Point. He was part of a segregated military. His experience before becoming president was really all in a segregated society. And I think his instincts on segregation were were dulled by that. He did not see, he, he used to talk about extremists on both sides uh, when he referred to the civil rights movement, as if to suggest that there was something morally equivalent about Martin Luther King and the people who bombed Martin Luther King's church uh, and, and that's ludicrous, I think at some level and and yet it did reflect the blinders uh, that Eisenhower had Now here's where it gets a little more complicated is that Eisenhower's record on civil rights is pretty good despite what I would say were the the weaknesses in his instincts. He of course appointed Earl Warren to as Chief Justice of the United States. he then went on uh, to appoint a number of other justices, those justices to a justice unanimously struck segregation over and over again beginning with brown versus board of education and, and all the cases that followed. Eisenhower ended segregation in Washington D.C., which was an area under his direct control because it wasn't there was no state interceding state government. And of course when governor Faubus in Arkansas defied federal authority and attempted to keep black children out of Arkansas out of Little Rock schools, Eisenhower Uh, summon the 101st Airborne, the same unit he'd used uh, in advance of D-Day, to escort those children into school. So in the end, Eisenhower presided over an incredibly important and uh, valuable expansion of civil rights in America. That he did it despite his upbringing and despite the limitations I think he had of a vision for civil rights makes it all the more extraordinary. It doesn't vindicate his views of civil rights or his false equivalence between the advocates of civil rights and their opponents, but he did produce a record of great success despite all that.
1: You know, every time we get on an interstate highway, I think we should thank Eisenhower. So, why did he support the <laughs> creation right. of the interstate highways, and and how was he so successful in getting it started?
2: Yeah, uh, it, and you mentioned that you've been to Abilene, and when you drive from Abilene to Kansas City, you hit a stretch of that uh, that original uh, interstate highway system. So, yes, I, I too have had the experience of appreciating him a lot. Well, it's interesting. Uh, the interstate highway system was sold in part as a defense measure; uh, that it was a way if if America should be attacked that uh, we could move material troops missiles uh, and other things around the country uh, with a more unified highway system in fact it was never really seen principally as a defense uh, operation i mean i think it, it could in theory have been used for that but what eisenhower really saw in it was the economic potential he was uh, he marveled at the Audubon when he had been in Germany and saw the ways that it helped connect that society. He saw great potential for it in the United States. He was even willing to impose taxes uh at highway levies uh, in order to get it done. He was not a fan of higher taxes. So he saw great economic potential and he was right. Uh, it really helped not only unlock a huge amount of uh, economic activity in the country, it helped shape American society in the decades to come. It's, among other things, responsible for the growth of suburbs. Um, It allowed uh, areas outside of cities to grow and participate in economic activity in a way that was more difficult when that it was harder to get in and out of cities. So it had profound and lasting impact. And it is a tribute really quite singularly to Eisenhower that he did it. There were some uh, predicates for it in the United States, California had already been building a highway system, and Eisenhower was impressed by the system in California. But uh, this is an area where I think his
1: vision was quite singular, and he deserves uh, real credit for it very much so now now, now let 's turn from the domestic sphere to foreign policy, so many foreign policy challenges during his two terms in office. So first, could you tell us how his new look approach to the Soviets incorporated the potential use of both conventional and nuclear weapons?
2: Yeah, this is the area where I think Eisenhower has to be enormously appreciated. Uh, I was i have often thought about the question. I wrote a book on uh, Earl Warren uh, before I wrote about Ike, and I've often pondered the question and even been asked the question: How would the country have been different if Warren had been elected president in '52? And Part of the answer to that is I do think the country would have had an easier experience on civil rights. I think Warren's instincts were better than Ike's on civil rights. But the bigger, more important answer is that I'm not sure we'd be here to talk about it because I think that preserving the peace through that period is something that almost only Eisenhower could have done. And that really borrows from his background in the military. And it is attributable in large measure to the so-called new look uh, policy, which within the administration was known as uh, NSC uh, 162, I think it was, which is is the number of the National Security Council document that memorialized it. Uh, New look uh, had three really Principal components. One is the government, Eisenhower uh, and his administration wanted to reduce manpower expenses in the military. Uh, to They didn't want to be on a permanent war footing uh, with the Soviet Union. The second was a determination to contain communism, in this case, Soviet communism, principally, although also Chinese communism, to within the, the ex- existing borders. So to try to prevent the expansion, extension of communism to Iran, to Guatemala, other places uh, over the course of the administration. And then the third component was an increased reliance on nuclear weapons, uh, in part to make up for the manpower reductions. That became the central challenge of the Eisenhower years, was to how to keep those ideas in balance with each other, to preserve the economic health of the United States, and to continually and credibly threatened to use nuclear weapons while also privately being determined not to do that as i mentioned a few minutes ago with respect to korea macarthur among others advocated the use of nuclear weapons in korea and throughout the eisenhower presidency over and over and over again the joint chiefs Secretaries of defense, various military officials, Vice President Nixon, others would suggest the use of nuclear weapons to resolve one conflict or another. And Eisenhower steadfastly, of course, refused. He is the first American president to have a nuclear weapon and not use one. Imagine how different our history would be had he chosen the other course, particularly in those early years when the United States could have used nuclear weapons without fear of retaliation um, or without, certainly without credible fear. Of retaliation it's quite possible that we would not be having this conversation today and so in that sense i think new look is is the foundation for a highly delicate extremely difficult to execute uh, posture with respect to the soviet union that was an attempt to outlast communism by containing it to threaten war continually but not engage in it and to reduce the costs of maintaining a military capable of that war uh, I, You know, I'll, the last thing I'll say on this, uh, I don't know, I've talked for a while on it, but um, the, the it, it, there are many ways to evaluate a presidency, economic health, growth, peace, prosperity, etc. One way to think about the Eisenhower presidency that I think is uh, useful uh, is that from the time that Eisenhower brought the Korean War to an armistice to the day that he left office, which is seven and a half years, the number of American servicemen killed in combat was one. There was an American killed in Lebanon by a sniper. That is an extraordinary record of peacekeeping. And while New Look kept the threat of conflict on permanently uh, at the forefront, it also prevented the fact of
1: conflict. And so, in that sense, I think it's a it's a great triumph of the
2: Eisenhower years.
1: How did covert actions factor into the, that? That plan of, of approaching the Soviets and foreign policy there's three real prongs of this right reducing manpower containment and reliance on nuclear
2: weapons containment is the bucket into which covert action really fell and here I think we should be clear-eyed about what the ramifications of that were the first real opportunity to use covert action uh, or at least the first opportunity that the Eisenhower administration seized on was in Iran in Iran uh, in 1953 Mossadegh had come to power in Iran the United States was Fearful uh, that he was under the sway of communists, or at least uh, uh, approach uh, willing to consider uh, including communists in his government. The United States was afraid of Iran's proximity uh, to the Soviet Union and its ability to control or influence oil traffic through the Gulf. The response was rather than to. Engage in a frontal conflict with the Soviet Union in Iran was to use covert action to topple Mossadegh. At the time, it struck the Eisenhower was delighted by the results of the US, with virtually no uh, significant military investment, ended a regime that he saw as potentially threatening the balance of power. In the very short term analysis, you could uh, argue that it was a success. The long term effects of that were to sow a uh, distrust of the United States in the region to expose the United States as a manipulative power uh, in that part of the world and you know we've been living with the consequences of a hostile Iran ever since uh, so it's hard to know how to score that in the in the cold war analysis it was a, an appealing option at the time and it seemed to to succeed by the standards that were set for it. Some of the same, I think, could be said of the Arbenz episode in Guatemala. Similarly, uh, when Arbenz came to power in Guatemala, the United States, uh, or at least the Eisenhower administration, uh, worried uh, that he was too leftist uh, for American interests. There's also the presence of america, large american companies many of whom had ties uh, to the administration uh, united fruit company among others and the united states dispatched arbans um, again with some sense that it, it had achieved its cold war balance of power objectives the longer consequence of that was to undermine american credibility and and uh, allow america to be portrayed accurately uh, as a manipulative power in Central America. Hard to know how to categorize those as successes or failures, and really the length length of the lens with which you view them uh, can help answer those questions. But they clearly, in Eisenhower's time, they offered an alternative to frontal conflict with the Soviet Union and and a, a way to contain communism without either a full scale conventional war or reliance on nuclear weapons
1: uh, another part of his Cold War strategy were the the atoms for peace and the open skies initiatives what How did they play a role in that overall strategy
2: yeah i you know Eisenhower is always sort of giving with one hand and taking back with the other mm-hmm. when it comes to nuclear weapons uh, and it is part of this very delicate balance i you know, think uh, one way of thinking about Eisenhower and the Soviets and nuclear weapons is that sometimes Eisenhower – and is using nuclear weapons to keep the Soviet Union in check or trying to. And at other times, he's negotiating with the Soviets to try to keep the use of nuclear weapons in check. And so it's a it's a very complicated and ongoing negotiation. As part of that, Eisenhower really wanted to try to encourage some level of communication and cooperation between the United States and the Soviet Union, out of the out of the belief that fully appreciating the destructive power of these weapons would ultimately discourage either side from using them, and you know, of course, the one of the great fears, especially as the Soviet Union built up its nuclear arsenal, uh, was that one side or the other would launch a preemptive strike, an attempt to destroy the capacity of the other to return fire and do unspeakable damage, and there uh, as a consequence as those arsenals became bigger and bigger, that became less and less possible. And the theory of mutually assured destruction arose. Um, but in the interim, Adams for Peace and Open Skies were two efforts to draw the Soviet Union into a more constructive, what Eisenhower viewed as a more constructive uh, relationship uh, regarding the use of nuclear weapons or nuclear material. Adams for Peace uh, the idea there uh, was to uh, create an international stockpile of radioactive material that could be used in all walks of life agriculture, energy, uh, whatnot, um, where uh, the two sides would share fissionable material or rather donate it to a, a UN supervised organization that would help parcel out uh, the material for for peaceful uses he believed that emphasizing that the peaceful uses of the of atomic uh, energy would help uh, take some of the pressure off war and some of the Competition out of it. The Soviets uh, at that time, this is in 1955, they were, uh, there were still a struggle for power going on in the Soviet Union. Stalin had died not long before. Uh, and the Soviets were just uninterested and smelled a rat uh, and just didn't believe that it was a sincere effort. So never engaged with it. Open Skies, offered at the Geneva Summit in 1955, it's you know it's sometimes been s- said to be the precursor of what Reagan used to talk about, uh, which is this idea of trusting the other side, but also verifying, trust but verify, being the sort of pithy uh, Reaganism. The idea there was to, that both sides would open up the skies over their countries to allow the other side to surveil them, uh, to surveil their uh, military capacity. Here again, Eisenhower's notion was that he believed that if both sides understood how destructive the other was, that it would keep them in check. It would prevent them from using the weapons. Um, The Soviets saw this as a backdoor way of trying to gain access. The Soviets, being a much more secretive society than the United States, among other things, um, saw this as a backdoor way of getting access uh, to material that they're to. Weapons that they were trying to conceal. So again, uh, they uh, wouldn't come to the table on it. You know, I, I think there's there's a benign. What I've given you is the fairly benign description of these of the sort of the the, the good-heartedness of the Eisenhower administration in offering them. At the same time, these were definitely attempts to try to. Uh, impress upon the Soviet Union the degree of superiority that the U.S. had in these areas and to discourage the Soviets from doing something reckless. In both cases, whether you see them uh, through the more uh, positive prism or the more negative one, a more cynical one, uh, in either case, we're left to wonder because the Soviets just didn't bite at either idea.
1: Well, in addition to having to deal with the Soviets... Also, several issues came up with China during the Eisenhower administration. What what were some of those flashpoints, and how did Ike address them? Yeah, well, the first is the one he inherited, Korea. China uh, was actively
2: involved. It had its own troops on the ground in Korea. Um, the prospect of a war with China over Korea was real and and was a fact. And so China was present quite literally from even before Eisenhower took office. And He uh after he was elected but before he uh took the oath of office, he uh visited uh Korea in fact. So uh, China was part of Eisenhower's foreign policy and his concerns from the from his first days in office and up to his last days. Uh, there were Chinese threatened Taiwan over and over again uh, throughout uh, the Eisenhower presidency. The threat of war and, in fact, even nuclear war over Taiwan, uh, again, was present really from the first days of the administration to the last. By the end, the Eisenhower administration uh, partly Uh, As the French garrison at Dien Bien Phu and the French presence in Vietnam came increasingly under attack and the French withdrew from Vietnam, Eisenhower committed early American forces advisors uh, to Vietnam in an attempt to keep that government out of the hands of communists. Uh, Eisenhower, will never know, of course, how far Eisenhower would have pursued the Vietnam War. Um, He turned it over to John Kennedy, of course, in 1961, and Kennedy continued to invest more and more American resources until his assassination. And then Johnson committed even more. But Eisenhower was the first to insert American military presence reluctantly, but to uh, to insert American military presence into Vietnam. Uh, So all of those uh, provided frightening opportunities uh, for violence um, and for the reuse of nuclear weapons, of course, Happily, uh, nuclear weapons never came into play in any of those conflicts, but they were ever-present as a possibility.
1: Well, if he didn't have enough to worry about with the Soviets and the Chinese, he also had to deal with some (laughs) issues with our allies, especially in the Middle East. Uh, So what explains his very negative response, to say the least, to the invasion of Egypt by the British, the French, and the Israelis? To seize control of the Suez Canal.
2: Yeah, one of the really most shocking moments of the administration, certainly, to Eisenhower himself, who who took to a certain degree, I think, took for granted. I, you know, Eisenhower had served in Europe as a supreme commander of NATO, believed that his knowledge of Europe and its leadership was solid and personal. Um, and then the the, the Israelis uh, and the Brits uh, and the French, uh, to his surprise, uh, did not uh, alert him in any way to the fact that they intended to make this move on the Suez Canal. And it, it actually created the incredibly unusual situation of the, uh, the American government defending Egypt against its historic allies, Israel uh, and uh, Britain and France, and briefly, Khrushchev somewhat mischievously even suggested that the United States and the Soviet Union could jointly hold off the threat. That's, that, that didn't yeah. come to pass, and it was probably more uh, mischief than serious. Uh, but the most puzzling thing to me about the Suez incident is that the British and French in particular decided uh, to exclude the Eisenhower administration. I, again, we'll never know how Eisenhower would have reacted had they brought the United States into the planning, or at least alerted the U.S. to the planning. But it is partly the shock of them going around that process and and excluding the United States from any discussion on it that that attracted Eisenhower's uh, ire about it. It also, I should just add you know, parenthetically or or with a little asterisk here, it also inclu- it was the same month uh that the Soviet Union rolled into Hungary to question the rebellion there. So it was a very busy period uh, in the life of the world, one in which the United States at times seemed quite isolated
1: uh, from, its, from its normal historic allies. Just enormous pressures on Ike uh, throughout the presidency, and he had to deal with several very serious medical issues. How, how did those challenges affect his presidency?
2: Yeah. Well, the biggest of those is the heart attack in the first term. He had some medical issues, including a stroke uh, in the second term. Um, But the one, the most public and the most disruptive to his presidency was his heart attack in the first term. He, of course, a lifelong smoker under unimaginable stress for most of his adult life, maybe unsurprisingly, given those facts, succumbed to a heart attack. Um, He Responded quite well to it um, and recovered quite quickly, but it did leave uh, significant questions in 1955 and 56 as to whether he would run for re-election. He was, at the time, the oldest person ever to have served in the presidency, um, and of course, he quite publicly had this heart attack. There were significant questions about whether he would run again. He wondered himself whether he would run again for a while. He delayed making any kind of public announcement on it. Uh, it created a stir within the Republican ranks, of course, about who would succeed him if he weren't to run. Uh, Earl Warren, who he had appointed to the Supreme Court, uh, dabbled with the idea of leaving the court and running for president. Nixon, of course, positioned himself to run for president in the event that I, I didn't make it, and of course, if had I. Died, of course, Eisenhower or uh, Nixon would have become president. Uh, among the many other ramifications of the heart attack uh, was it did help bolster Eisenhower's uh, appreciation for Nixon. Their relationship was always a difficult one and uh, one of many misunderstandings. But Nixon performed quite admirably and really to the uh, to the great appreciation of fellow members of the cabinet and other close Eisenhower advisors. He even. Um, took very careful symbolic steps to make sure that the administration was running to consult Eisenhower, but also never to sit in his chair at cabinet meetings or to presume to have elevated himself to the presidency. Um, And so uh, one of the other unexpected ramifications or fallouts from the heart attack was that Eisenhower did get a first look at Nixon as a leader um, and liked him. you know, Eisenhower gave very serious thought to replacing Nixon on the ticket in 56. Um, and in fact, even considered replacing him with a Democrat, which would have been a, a stunning shift in our politics. But I think it is partly uh, Nixon. He, he debated asking Nixon, I mean, in fact, he did ask Nixon if Nixon would consider moving over to Secretary of Defense uh, in the second administration. Nixon's performance during that period, though, helped solidify Eisenhower's sense that he was uh, worthy of the presidency, ultimately. Not without some misgivings, but uh, the way that Nixon handled that event did raise him in Eisenhower's esteem.
1: After a very eventful eight years as president, Ike gave a famous farewell speech. What do you think he was trying to accomplish with that speech, his warnings about the military-industrial complex and the technological-scientific elite?
2: Well, first of all, I should say one of the one of the most exciting moments for me in researching this book, I was at the Eisenhower Library in Abilene um, just tolling away as I did for for many days and weeks uh, over the course of the four years that I researched the book. And one day I was taking a little break and I was standing at the window and there was a truck that was just unloading cartons uh, outside the, in a sort of delivery area outside the library. And one of the assistant directors, one of the administrators of the library, Saw me looking out the window and said, "Do you know what that is?" And I said, oh, "Of course not." Uh, and he said, "We're getting these new files on the farewell address." And it turned out that the rough thirty drafts of the of the of the military industrial complex speech, the farewell address. Uh, had been saved by one of the authors uh, of the address, one of the speechwriters, and they'd been in a in a boathouse in Minnesota for decades. Oh uh, and his grandchildren, when they were cleaning out the boathouse, found them and alerted the Eisenhower Library. Wow. Um, and crazy. there they were. Well, so among other things, what that showed really for the first time uh, I, uh, there was a lot of the speeches so such an eloquent address and eisenhower of course not famous for his eloquence although i think sometimes undeservedly seen as sort of a clunky speaker clunkier in press conferences than in formal speeches but that there's always been speculation that well maybe somebody wrote the address for him and he just delivered it or that he wasn't actively involved in the in the creation of the speech uh, these drafts prove otherwise. Um, draft after draft, uh, Eisenhower's handwriting throughout them. He was clearly intimately involved, and in it. it took over a year uh, to prepare. He thought very deeply on it in the style of George Washington. Wanted to leave some parting words to his countrymen, and he had seen in a way that I think almost no other person of his time could have seen and appreciated the dangerous effects of of this process of, of Generals serving in the military, going off to work for contractors, lobbying Congress for weapons, uh, using this this relationship that grew up between the military, contractors, and Congress that had the propulsive effect of demanding more and more weapons, and that. To the degree that that became what he called a complex. In fact, in one of the early drafts of the speeches, he refers to it as the military-industrial-congressional complex. Um, and we don't know precisely why he took the word congressional out, although I must say, since he was delivering this as an address to Congress and as a farewell yeah, address right. to American people, it would have had a sharper feel to it. Um, and this, I think, probably helped its reception, certainly, certainly in Congress. He saw that as something that was uh, – that was becoming a built-in part of the American defense process that was deeply worrisome to him. And so he wanted to say something about it, and he did, and I think captured something that has stayed with the public imagination for all the decades since. Less remarked on at the time and since is this notion of a technological scientific elite. Uh, But that too, uh, I think, was quite prescient. Um, What he was really grappling with there was the transition from the idea of the sort of lone inventor working in a lab and coming up with something that was profound and changing to the human condition. That that was really being replaced by government financed science, and that labs were doing work that the government asked them to do, and that they were they had become dependent on grants and financial support, and that it was it was becoming a more state directed process and a less entrepreneurial one. Um, He didn't use those words precisely, but that too is a is a true observation about American society, particularly at that juncture. With if not equally, at least significantly profound implications alongside that of the military industrial complex. Um, I think because he called it an elite and because it seemed less wrapped up in the world of warfare and therefore danger, it wasn't as remarked on at the time. Uh, But it too, I think is, is really thought provoking and important for people to consider. And it too has stood the test Of time and analysis, so it's it is a enormously important speech, and what we know now is that it's also one that Eisenhower directly and personally shaped.
0: All right, Jim, I have a few short questions about the personal side of our thirty fourth POTUS. So, first question: Past or present? Who do you think his favorite president would be? The two presidents to
2: whom he is most often compared and i think he would endorse this would be George Washington and uh, Ulysses Grant obvious reasons and less obvious ones the two the obvious reasons both were generals uh, before they served in the presidency both are, would would have been gigantic figures in american history without ever becoming president in the case of washington there are psychological uh, comparisons to make too they're both very reserved people although personally, I had very close friends, but there was a a sort of uh, grandeur about them. And, you know, I think across all three of them, this sense that in some ways their greatest work may have been as generals. Uh, So I I think those are the presidents with whom he's most often compared, and I think rightly so.
0: So on that same note, he was one of 13 men who held the titles president and general. Which title meant the most to him, do you think?
2: Unquestionably, general in retirement, he asked to be referred to as general. He had his title returned to him uh, in retirement. Now there are some pension related issues there too. And at the time, there wasn't really a pension for the president, uh, and there was for his military service. But he also liked to say, somewhat whimsically, but I think with a grain of truth, that he worked his whole life to become a general, and he only became president by accident. So <laughs> I, uh, and you know, again, not not to just belabor the obvious, but. It's no small feat to defeat Adolf Hitler in wartime, uh, and I think he he would have been perfectly happy for that
1: to have been his mark in
2: history, even without the presidency. So I think in his case, it's that's an
1: easy one. I think everyone we've spoken to, when yeah. they've asked, we've asked that Same question, answer. they've always said general, yes. Yeah, yeah. I, that's I I think that that's a in in his case anyway
2: a, an easy question to
0: answer. A little more lighthearted. Did Ike have a favorite drink or dessert? Something special he indulged (laughs) in on special occasions.
2: He had a favorite food that he indulged in that he shouldn't have, which is he liked to cook steak and he liked to cook it directly on the coals. Oh, I have tried cool. to, I have tried to do this and wow. it is not easy. I do not know how <laughs> he did that. Um uh, I, I was in fact I was in an event for this book years and years ago when it first came out um and the hosts of the event uh, delightfully sort of created an Eisenhower afternoon and evening and they grilled steaks directly on the coals and I just I don't know how you do that without burning everything. But um
0: uh and of course that see that's a military man right you you make it happen right right.
2: Right. it's a military man and it's a guy who's headed for a heart attack i can tell you that too
0: (laughs) now he's famous for his obsession with golf and quite a few modern presidents have also enjoyed the game while taking a little heat for being on the course too much Was this a problem for him as well? Did the press or the public really care that he was on the golf course all the time?
2: Uh, Yes, is the answer. Uh, And undeservedly, of course, as is almost always the case, I think, with these. um, um, He was ridiculed as the sort of, you know, the kind of out of it old man who played golf rather than focusing on the presidency. In fact, my book opens uh, with an eventful meeting of the National Security Council It was on May 1st. 58, a day in which the the National Security Council debated whether to refashion the American nuclear weapons policy to make it easier to build smaller nuclear weapons on the theory that it would be useful to be able to use them more often. Again, a fateful uh, possibility that Eisenhower rejected. On the day that that happened, the only coverage of him in the next day's paper was about him playing golf. And it's a reminder that while we saw him playing golf, in fact, He was shaping nuclear weapons policy. So, uh, you know, a part of this is deliberate. Eisenhower believed that the American people shouldn't have to pay attention to everything the president did. He felt that uh, FDR and Truman had nurtured a kind of crisis atmosphere in the United States and that the American people just wanted a breather. And so some of that's deliberate. And some of it is, frankly, is that he liked to play golf and he liked to play bridge and he needed to relax. And he did so and he did get criticized for it. Yes.
0: Now, Ike is such an important figure, not just for his presidency, but in our nation's history overall. Why do you think today's voting public should know more about him? What kind of perspective can he give today's political conversations?
2: I think there's so many ways. And ways. Well, first, let me just say, when I started this book, I did not think that I would like him. Uh, I set out believing I would write a very critical book of the Eisenhower presidency in part because I had written about Earl Warren and Warren was not fond of him that they had once after being appointed to the court, they sort of fell out and never really liked each other much after that. And because I'd seen him through the prism of civil rights where I don't think he does particularly hold up particularly well, but that's, uh, I ended up becoming a great admirer of him throughout the course of this research. Um, I think his, um, his civility, his openness to ideas that he didn't always agree with, his his uh, remove from the confines of partisanship. He was a Republican, of course, and a conservative, but he also was certainly, by today's standards, a moderate. in, in almost every respect, he was he balanced the budget. Uh, he. believed in engagement with our allies. He was the furthest thing from an isolationist. I think all of those are a reminder that America has a place to play in the world and it isn't won or earned by blustering or threatening that in fact, America is such a power, has such a powerful place in the world that to do those things is inevitably to antagonize allies and others. Eisenhower had a gentler touch um, and he was smarter than he appeared. Uh, He was not there to dazzle uh, his opponents or others, but he was an exemplar of steady, moderate leadership. And the result is that he got the United States through one of the most treacherous periods in its history in fine shape. And that's to be
0: admired. Yeah. Well said. Jim, we really enjoyed this book. Really interesting. Do you have anything new in the works? Anything you can tell us about (laughs) You're very kind to ask.
2: Yeah, my next book is something very different. I'm writing a book about uh, Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead. The idea is to look at the San Francisco counterculture and ask questions about how counterculture has changed American society and what about it perseveres. And I chose uh, Garcia Uh, partly because the Grateful Dead are really foundational to that uh, birth of the San Francisco counterculture in the mid-1960s. But then they survived for 30 more years. Uh, Jerry Garcia died in 1995. And so through his person, I hope to be able to track the ways the counterculture developed and the ways it influenced things like the peace movement and the environmental movement. Um, And so while all my other books have been kind of politics in front with culture behind them. This time I'm trying to look at culture in the front with the politics uh, as more of the, the backdrop. Uh, so it's a different kind of project for me, but I'm off and running and hope to have something for you to read in a couple of years.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, Sounds great. Look forward to it. All right, Jim. Well, well thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us here on the podcast. Hopefully you had fun on American POTUS. We appreciate you being here. I
2: appreciate it very
1: much and enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. On June 6, 1944, the D-Day invasions commenced, with the landings in Normandy of over 130,000 Allied troops. That momentous day proved to be the beginning of the end for the scourge of Hitler and his horrific philosophy of Nazism. Sadly, tens of millions were already dead. Many more would die before the war ended, and Europe, North Africa, and much of Asia was devastated. The man leading those invasions, the supreme Allied commander, was Dwight David Eisenhower. Just think of the pressure on him. In his order of the day on June 6th, Ike said to his troops that, quote, the eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you, unquote. Less than a year later, Hitler was dead and Germany had surrendered. Just five months after that, Japan surrendered and finally peace had returned. What many people don't know is that on D-Day, Ike had prepared a message to release to the world in case the landings were a failure. That note read as follows, quote, "...our landings in the cherbourg avre area have failed to gain a satisfactory foothold, and I have withdrawn the troops. My decision to attack at this time and place is based upon the best information available. The troops, the air, and the Navy did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone." Unquote. In typical Eisenhower fashion, he was prepared to take the onus of failure in one of the most important battles in the history of our civilization. The strength and integrity that example gives us is just one of the many legacies he left behind. We are fortunate that this nation produces such leaders, but I believe we are all capable of not disliking Ike, but being like him.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS Podcast. We'd like to thank author Jim Newton for joining us on this episode about Dwight Eisenhower. More information on his book, Eisenhower, The White House Years, can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. If you have comments on this episode or ideas for future topics, you can easily send us a note on AmericanPOTUS.com, Facebook, or Twitter. We would also appreciate you taking the time to provide a positive rating and review on the player you're listening to right now. And if you're new to American POTUS, please check out the 70-plus episodes that are available in the playlist, covering the presidents and the presidency from the very beginning. Graphic design for American POTUS is by the Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Dwight Eisenhower. Quote, I despise people who go to the gutter on either the right or the left and hurl rocks at those in the center.